0: This is The Think Tank with Dr. Mike O'Neill talking about the major political, economic, and social issues of the week. The Think Tank, KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com.
1: Our our guest today is Karen Taylor-Robeson. Is it Karen or Corinne, by the way? It's Karen. Karen, okay, because it it could read Corinne if you didn't know how to pronounce it. She's a candidate for governor, I should point out. Uh, There were two other candidates invited. Matt Salmon explicitly said he had a scheduling conflict. Carrie Lake did not respond uh, to two separate emails. Um, And so the floor is yours. (laughs)
2: that's interesting.
1: But, well, you know, i I had an expectation going in, uh, in. In when you do an invitation like this, it's usually the current front runner has a surprisingly has a scheduling conflict, and everybody else is is there. By most polls, Carrie Lake is a little bit ahead of you, so she's the front runner, and so her non response was not a surprise to me. Matt Sammons was a surprise. Uh, and, yeah, I discount the scheduling conflict because I wrote a couple of weeks in advance, and these things could always be changed. But it is what it is, and you are here, and you're running for governor. Why should somebody vote for you?
2: Well, because I, am a, I bring experience and passion and commitment and clarity of vision to the table. I'm running for governor because our our borders are being overrun. We're being invaded from the south, and I believe we're under assault from Washington, D.C., I have been, you know, in the private sector for nearly 30 years working on the other side of government, you know, most of it at the local level, but some at the state level and the federal level, trying to, you know, help people wind their way through the bureaucracy of government. Uh, And and the more I have learned and the more I have done, I believe Washington, D.C. is is broken. And I think, you know, if, if COVID taught us anything, governors matter governors really matter and you know why and how we let the federal government take over every aspect of our life is uh, beyond me. Uh, but I see our freedoms being eroded and taken away. And uh, you know I'm a, I'm a mother of four, I'm a lifelong Republican, lifelong Arizonan and you know I, I look at what what opportunities and blessings I have had and that I have enjoyed and I see those slipping away for the next generation. Well, and I, I, I put a lot of the blame on Washington, D.C.
1: I'd like to uh, follow up on a couple of the points you made there. Uh, one, I, I didn't expect to hear about your freedoms. I don't feel I've had any freedoms particularly eroded. What what freedoms are eroding?
2: Well, the, the growth of the federal government. I mean, every dollar we send to Washington, D.C., we get some fraction of that back in Arizona.
1: In Arizona, that's more than 100 percent we if we are we are one of the uh donor recipients states. we i think we're a recipient state no we're not we, we are have a switched. donor
2: state and we have been a donor state for many 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 mm-hmm. years and so, you know, we, we send our money to Washington to be laundered and then we get a fraction of it back. Mm-hmm. And when I look at, you know, just the regulatory framework of what goes on in Washington, D.C., you know, it is, that is one of the biggest impediments to small business. I spent 10 years of my career splitting my time between Arizona and California uh, land use cases. And the California land use cases sent me to Washington. And, and when you have to send an army of consultants and lawyers and biologists and botanists and economic consultants with you to Washington, D.C. to be able to do something with your property in California, that's a problem. That is a problem to me. Every time I would come back from Washington, I would be a little bit more depressed with the largesse of, of the government. And it's not, the, not really the fault of any one party. You know, both parties have allowed this to happen. And, and, and I just, I believe in states' rights and limited government. I believe in, you know, a, a, a low tax and low regulatory environment because I believe people, individual people, want to succeed. And that's why so many people are moving to Arizona. We're, you know, close to the top of the list of people wanting to move here. And, and we have, you know, 70% of our adult population came from somewhere else. You know, I'm a native yeah. Arizona, and you, you can't pry me out of this state. And so when I, yeah. look, when I look at the people that have moved here, They left their families, their homes, their jobs, their traditions behind to come to a place that in in large measure is still a free state where you come here, you work hard, you treat people well, you can achieve what you want to achieve. And I can give you story after story of people that I've witnessed that I've seen do that. You can't do that in every state. You cannot do that in every state, and I believe Arizona is, you know, still the the shining city on the hill.
1: Well, you mentioned low taxes. Uh, the state is sitting on, by most estimates, a, a multi billion dollar surplus. Would you allocate any of that for public education?
2: Well, I am a huge, uh, I'm, you know, well, well, if you've seen any of my ads, clearly the border mm-hmm. is a priority.
1: I'm my getting pa- there. I'm getting there.
2: My <laughs> passion is education. 18 mm-hmm. years ago, I was appointed to a school board. To, uh, to the Great Hearts School Board when we had one school. Mm-hmm. Great Hearts now has 25 schools and thousands of kids on a waiting list. Like I said, I have four kids. They've all been through different educational mm-hmm. pathways, public school, public charter school, private school. Every child and the needs of every child should be met. And in Arizona, we have more kids enrolled in charter school than any other state in the nation per capita. We also have over 50 percent of our kids going to a school other than the one they're assigned. That tells me parents want to choose. And right now, we have a system that was designed for adults and not the kids. I'm passionate about kids, and we have to give every child the best education option that we can. One size fits all. System of the past doesn't work. If we need more resources in education, we will put more resources in education. But the Auditor General, just a a little fact, because I just read it, the Auditor General just came out with a report that a lot of the money that was intended to go to the teachers in the 20 by 20 Mm -hmm. effort hasn't made it into the pockets of the teachers. It's getting, you know, talk about laundering money through Washington. We're laundering money through the bureaucracy. And we have to figure out a way to make sure that the money makes it into the pockets of the teachers. And we have to empower every parent to have a real choice to send their kid to whatever school, public, private, charter, homeschool, pod school, micro school, whatever.
1: But isn't it something of the order of 90 percent of our students, I don't know the exact number, are in a public school right now?
2: Uh, I don't have that exact figure. Yeah. I just know it's that the
1: overwhelming majority. Yes, I, I think yes, and I'm a huge
2: believer now. in public education. I didn't hear an
1: answer to the question of the current budget surplus. Would you be? Would you propose to allocate any of that to public education?
2: My answer to that question is: if it's necessary, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But I, How do you I,
1: determine if it's necessary? Most measures have us 49th or 50th in public, uh, funding for public education. Well,
2: let's talk about that for a minute. Because if money was the answer to outcomes, Detroit would have the best outcomes. Detroit spends $25,000, $26,000 per student, and they have some of the worst outcomes in the country, 6% reading proficiency. Utah, on the other hand, spends almost – the least amount in the country, and they have some of the best outcomes. Probably so,
1: has something to do with the student relative student bodies they are starting it, it, out with it, social it dysfunction, a, a variety of other you know, if you have more developmental disabilities, you're gonna it's gonna cost you more to do the same thing.
2: Uh, right. That you're absolutely right. But my point is we have to start with the outcome in mind. You know, I have been in 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 multiple conversations with people where their first answer is we need more money. We need more money. Well, we, we might get to that, mm-hmm. but we're going to have a real substantive conversation about what outcomes we want and how we're going to get there. And if we need more resources, we will have more resources to do that. But we're not going to start with this, you know, just knee-jerk reaction that money is the answer to everything.
1: Interesting. Would you apply the same logic to border spending?
2: Well, it's a, two totally different things. One is about security. And, you know, it's, like I said, education's my passion, border's my priority. Mm. You don't, you know, wake up in the morning and, you know, get all excited about the fact that you have to go secure the border. Mm. You know, Arizona is on the front lines of a 50-state border crisis. And conservative estimates have that it's costing Arizona about $2 billion a year. In fact, recently I, you know, became aware that one little slice of that $2 billion is, seven, is, is a $78 million slice that goes to our Department of Corrections to house criminal aliens. And I think, what can we do with that $78 million? Think about how many more teachers we can hire for $78 million. Or think about how many police officers we can hire for $78 million. Arizona is paying a disproportionate burden of the cost of a 50-state border crisis.
1: We'll be back in just a minute and we will, I promise you, border is your number one issue. We'll talk about that. But first, we're going to talk about some other stuff in a brief break. And we'll return in just a moment in the Think Tank.
0: The Think Tank, KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. We're back
1: with Karen Taylor Robeson, candidate, Republican candidate for governor. And as promised, we're going to talk about the border. Um what would you think about a proposal to uh, increase border funding, border security funding, by a factor of twenty?
2: Well, I have not been asked that mathematical mm-hmm. equation before. But what I will tell you is, in my border plan, the first, the very first thing that I've said I will do yeah. as governor is to call an emergency session of the legislature to find the resources we need to send to local law enforcement along the border who are on the front lines. You know, you mentioned in the previous segment, we're sitting on a big surplus. Mm -hmm. And, And for me, as Governor... Job number one is to make sure that we have a safe and secure Arizona for the people and property of Arizona, and our border sheriffs have been asking for more resources and it's not just you know a function of money resources but what other what mm-hmm. other tools are in the toolbox from enhancing our state laws uh, from enhancing you know uh, response times uh, we, we just have to look at everything and and this needs to be a whole of government approach to provide border security so that we can uh, so that we do our job in keeping the people and, and the property on, the, on our southern border safe and secure.
1: By the way, there's a reason for that specific question because a factor of 20 increase is exactly what we did between 1986 and 2008, corrected for inflation and, po- and population. We had that kind of an increase. We have been hearing about increased border funding for decades now. We've been doing it and the net result is we 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 have only increased right in fact the most definitive study i've seen has been one that looked at the impact of all this increased border security and estimated that the net result of that was to actually increase immigration by 30% and that sounds counterintuitive till they explained why border immigration used to be some male usually male worker coming over here work t- getting a job going home for the winter mm-hmm and the and and when they tighten the border they came over they stayed they brought their families cuz you know cuz once you get through if the border's being mm-hmm. tightened up if you get through you don't get back mm-hmm. and the net increase in this study is of all the increased enforcement, we get 30 percent more illegal immigration because of that than we would have had without it.
2: Well, I am glad you asked yeah. that question all right. mm-hmm. because we have a broken immigration system. And I'm back to you know bashing Washington, mm-hmm. D.C., because for 40 years they've had this problem and they haven't fixed it. And as you know, immigration is a federal issue. Border mm-hmm. security is something a governor can do something about. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to immigrant, we need a functioning immigration system. We are a country of immigrants. We need a system that works, and, and it's obvious you know, we don't have one, and we have more people coming across the border. And quite frankly, when I, when I decided to jump in the arena, I said, okay, depending on what TV station or news station you listen to, you're getting a different picture of what's going on on the border. So I decided to go down there often. I've been mm-hmm. down there many times. I, I just, we just planned another trip down there, and I'm learning stuff every single time. And as a, as a Republican, I think of border security in terms of national security. Right? if you don't have a border you don't have a mm-hmm. country. but the more you go down there it's it 's far more than that. the human tragedy that 's unfolding with human smuggling, sex trafficking, and the drugs, the flood of drugs coming across the border I mean it is a scourge on this entire country it 's affecting every city and town in this country i was in I was in Gila County a couple of days ago and discovered that that they are one of the um, they have one of the highest overdose overdose races. Um, uh, rates, excuse me, of any county in the country. I mean, it is impacting families and kids that, you know, that are are, are taking, you know, prescription pills that have been laced with fentanyl and dying. I mean, this is a scourge on our country. And, you know, on the sex trafficking, first time I was down there in Yuma, the individual that was giving us the tour showed us a rape tree. Get that out of Mm -hmm. your mind. You know, the cartels are charging on average $6,000 a head. You do the numbers. Two million people last year, more this year. Mm -hmm. That's real money. That is real money. And when you you see it, you can't look the other way. You can't look the other way at the human tragedy. And I contend that's why our vice president, Kamala Harris, won't go and see this. Because if she did, she would have to face the truth. So back to Washington. It's broken. They need to fix it. And one more thing. Cross-border trade is critical to Arizona's economy. Go to Nogales. Mm-hmm. The cross-border trade, is $17 billion a year. We must have a properly working border system and a properly working immigration system. The workers, the seasonal workers, that were, you know, that's broken too. Mm-hmm. We need those seasonal workers. They want to come here. We need them. And yet we can't seem to figure out a way to solve it.
1: Would you support a compromise along the lines of that which years ago Senators Flake and McCain proposed? Well, essentially I th- the, the problem in, is we got two sides on this and they don't agree and, right, right. And unless somebody compromises somewhere we're going to get exactly what we got which is nothing.
2: Yeah so I you know I believe as as governor we will do everything we can mm-hmm. to secure the border and and securing the border so that the people and property of Arizona are protected is job number 1. That's what I can and will focus mm-hmm. on and I will put pressure on our delegation as a border state mm-hmm. our senators and our representatives to do whatever they need to to fix the immigration side. You know there's there's no challenge too big for Americans to solve if we're willing to work together and 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 solve them.
1: How do you feel about bipartisanship?
2: Well, you know, I am an unapologetic conservative mm-hmm. on every issue that matters to conservatives. And You know, that's who I am. And, you know, even to my my friends, you know, my Democrat friends, they know that. But they also know that I respect other people and other people's opinions. Um, You know, my my time working in the education arena, Mm -hmm. I have focused largely, my passion in, in the education arena has been about civics education and free speech. Because at the end of the day, we're all Americans. We live in the greatest country ever ever known to man that, have, that has – in a system, an economic system that has lived, lifted more people out of poverty than any other system ever in the world. We aren't perfect. You know. We, we strive to a, a more perfect union. But as Americans, we have to be able to use our words to sit down together and resolve our differences, resolve our problems because these problems are not easy, right? These problems mm-hmm. can't be solved and resolved with sound bites, It takes hard work and a dedication to listening to one another. And you can do that without compromising your principles. I believe you can.
1: I'm thinking the the model, and we have about a minute left. The model we've had pretty much for the last eight years is the Republicans have the majority. They basically run everything until such time as they get a a defection from their ranks. And then they talk then and only then they talk to the Democrats. Mm
2: -hmm. Well, I'll tell you, you know, all I can tell you is my life's experiences. My Mm -hmm. first job out of college was working for Ronald Reagan at Mm -hmm. the White House. Right, Ronald Reagan and you might recall Tip O'Neill. They were famously, po- yes. famously, political adversaries, yeah. but they were friends. They respected mm-hmm. each other.
1: Yeah, they had a, they had something going on a human level.
2: That's right. Yeah. That's right. And that's that's how mm-hmm. you make things happen in America. We've been able to advance human progress more mm-hmm. than any other system ever because we've been able to use our words to work together to solve problems. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, there was a legislative leader who used to do that. His name was Carl Canasic.
2: That's right. That's right. And I'll tell you, if I can, you know, it was 50 years ago that Carl Knossack, my father, was elected, first elected mm-hmm. to the legislature. Uh, and he was elected the same year a young man named Art Hamilton was elected. Mm-hmm. Art Hamilton, this is a fun trivia uh, question or answer, he, he, was, uh, he, he was too young to serve. He had to sit in the gallery in the legislature, and they, they ultimately appointed him to a seat. But he's classic liberal Democrat. My dad was a classic conservative Republican, and to this day, they're still best of friends.
1: Great to hear Karen Taylor Robson, uh, good luck to you, and uh, we'll be back in a moment on a completely different topic in the Think Tank.
0: This is the Think Tank with Dr. Mike O'Neill talking about the major political, economic, and social issues of the week. The Think Tank, KTAR News, on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com.
1: Our thanks to Karen Tiller-Robeson, candidate for governor, who was our guest in the first half of this show. Second half of the show, but probably above what what in newspaper business they call top-of-the-fold business, a leaked document from the Supreme Court credibly authenticated by the chief justice, uh, suggests that there's a decision likely to come down that will essentially set aside Roe v. Wade, which has been the basis for abortion law in this country for the last uh, 51 years. Our guests are Chris Love. She's uh, board chair for Planned Parenthood Advocates of Arizona. Julie Gunigal is a candidate for county attorney, uh, both lawyers. So can speak with some authority. I'll start with you, Chris. Just if this – let's make the assumption that the, that the document that was released is essentially the document that will get majority approval by the Supreme Court. We don't know that for sure, but it, it seems highly likely. The, the tea leaves suggest that. What happens immediately in our, in our legal system with respect to abortion?
3: Well, immediately speaking, Planned Parenthood stores will still remain open to provide a range of reproductive services. We've been around for more than a century. We predate Roe versus Wade itself and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. We'll continue to be around to provide Arizonans with comprehensive reproductive health care. Currently speaking, if Roe versus Wade is overturned, we have some uh, pre-Roe bans that are on the books. So there
1: were laws that were in effect until 1972 were were wiped out by Roe. Mm those come back?
3: Well, not necessarily. Those laws were enjoined in the mm-hmm. 1970s because of Roe. Right. So our position is that the, the legislature will have to revive that case in order to get the pre-Roe bans to take effect. Also... I
1: smell litigation coming on oh, that point, though. The, 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 <laughs> I could see other people taking the position. No, those are those right. are back in.
3: Right. Absolutely. And we also have the issue of the 15-week ban that Governor mm-hmm. Ducey signed in into law that will take effect about ninety days after mm-hmm. the legislative session ends. Governor, that Ducey- would
1: seem to make that law uh, copacetic,
3: right? Constitutionally, well, assuming Ducey, right, Ducey has taken the position that the fifteen-week ban is what's it right? He's mm-hmm. gone on record as saying that. Um, now, I don't trust him as far as I can throw him. However, we're ready to fight. And Planned Parenthood is built for this kind of fight. We've been fighting since Roe versus Wade was actually handed down from the Supreme Court, and we'll continue to fight. Just because the Supreme Court may ban abortions or overturn Roe versus Wade, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, doesn't mean that the need for abortion access. Mm-hmm. W- stops existing abortion,
1: Julie, Julie, I think you've been, I have been. I have the advantage of seeing you here. You're kind of nodding your head. At, you're essentially on board in terms of the same legal analysis.
4: As usual, Chris Love is exactly correct. <laughs> 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 okay. This okay. is why I support Julie Gunnagel,
3: her <laughs> county attorney. <laughs> okay. So that
1: is the legal situation. So, so, expect litigation mm-hmm. laws on the books pre 1972 sounds like will be litigated mm-hmm. laws recently passed that will not have the potential for a legal challenge that they have today
3: I mean everything is up for yeah. legal challenge let's be real um I think but th- I mean
1: this doesn't I mean th- that's always the case mm-hmm. but doesn't this just raise that to a a whole new level that there's a whole lot of stuff that would previously have been, you know, what point, you know, 15 weeks, 20 weeks, mm-hmm. or some, any other number, that Roe v. Wade was a, a bolster to those who took the legal position that uh, laws like that were unconstitutional.
3: Oh, absolutely. It was the stopgap mm-hmm. for that, right? Um, you know, Roe established the 24-week viability um, standard mm-hmm. that we use today. But um, let's make no mistake about that. You know, Arizona has a storied history of a lot of anti-abortion legislation, including our trap laws, including a 20-week ban on abortions, making sure that all medication abortions are given by MDs. So we have all of these series of things that have been chipping away at the right to abortion. Tracking, which, here.
1: look, to an outside an honest observer, look, these are attempts to make abortion more difficult. To oh,
3: absolutely. And those laws... Um, have a disproportionate impact on people of color, on poor people who can become pregnant. Rich white ladies will always be able to access abortion because they have the means to do so. Mm. Um, but these laws really strike at the heart of what we believe is equity in this country. Right. Mm. Um, and so the impact will be felt by, you know, folks who are poor and don't have the access to abortion that people with money do.
1: Julie, the question to you, we've talked about the legal side. I I see uh, just a huge potential impact politically. What's your take on what that is?
4: So what we know right now about Maricopa County is that 80% of the folks living here do not want to see abortion or contraceptives criminalized. And the upshot of this litigation that will ensue after Roe would be exactly that. We have a pre-territorial felony ban on abortion that creates a two-year mandatory minimum up to five years in in prison. But we also have a misdemeanor contraceptives rule that is potentially in play. And when you couple these pre-territorial laws with...
1: Pre-territorial? I mean, before we were a territory? Like
4: oh. 1901. That's right. <laughs> or, that's right. Or pre-statehood. You're right. Mm-hmm. Pre-statehood. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you couple that with laws like SB 1457 that, for example, created fetal personhood, we're going to see a big interaction um, between rights that we, that we thought we had um, with the criminal law. And I'm very concerned about what that looks like, whether it's imprisoning um, patients and doctors for access to abortion or more insidious ways that the state will, will come into people's private and personal lives. It's not that far off where there were cases like the woman in Alabama, for example, who was pregnant and got into a fight and somebody shot her in the stomach. She, she was prosecuted for failing to protect her fetus, and that's the upshot of fetal personhood laws. So I'm, I'm worried. Was that thrown
1: out? That, <laughs> it was
4: eventually due, yeah. to, due to outcry, but there have been over 200 cases in the last 15 years where pregnant people have been criminalized uh, based yeah. on these fetal personhood laws as well.
1: You've made statements about what uh, if elected uh, county attorney in terms of some of these laws, what's your, what's your position in enforcement?
4: Not now, not ever. I'm I mean, sorry. Do I need to? No, no.
1: Do that's we need clear. to say more? I, no, you don't. That's pretty clear. <laughs> but but it, but, it, but it, <laughs> it suggests a, a follow up question, which is okay. Philosophically, now, I'm a prosecutor has huge huge discretion probably probably more than any position in government you can you can elect to prosecute or not pr- prosecute it is not the only criteria that some be guilty of a crime there also has to be a judgment decision that it that it makes sense to do so what's the philosophical point or what's the line that's there that's that says that's the protection against just Well, I don't like this, so I'm not going to enforce that. How do you come to a decision like that?
4: Sure. I mean, I think the lines are incredibly clear. It's in the job description of the county attorney. The legislature makes the laws. The county attorney chooses how they get enforced. Mm -hmm. And the guiding light in all of those determinations are the interests of justice. And what the interests of justice takes into account is can your county attorney win these sorts of cases? Um, is there a likelihood of conviction? Mm-hmm. And is it worth spending the taxpayers' precious public safety dollars? To engage in these sorts of prosecutions and i think the answer when it comes to abortion and contraceptive prosecutions is a resounding no on both fronts when you have 80 percent of the public saying we don't want you to Mm -hmm. be engaged in this how is a jury ever going to convict a doctor or a patient when we know that that's how they feel about these laws Mm -hmm. and moreover we already don't prosecute half of the cases that come to the county attorney So when I hear other candidates say that they're going to enforce this law, uh, the question really needs to be asked, what aren't you going to enforce because you are choosing to redirect tax dollars to be the abortion police and prosecutors?
1: Are there other laws that come to mind that you would put in the same category that you think should not be prosecuted right now?
4: I mean, just off the top of my head, we have a misdemeanor restriction on adultery. In our in our jurisdiction. How often have you seen a cheating spouse hauled into court and thrown into jail for six months? That's not a good use of our taxpayer dollars.
1: That was that was on the books in Baltimore as well. Uh-huh. It was a five dollar fine. Though. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I do recall that. that. was pre-inflation. <laughs> (laughs) We'll be back with Julie Gonegal and Chris Love talking about the Roe versus Wade impending decision and the likely consequences on our criminal law, on our politics and other matters when we return in just a moment in The Think Tank.
0: The Think Tank, KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com.
1: Well, the political mills this week have been abuzz with the story of the leaked document from the Supreme Court, uh, which almost never happens. I mean, the last big leak I can think of is when Bob Woodward wrote The Brethren, which was a fascinating insight into the way the Supreme Court worked. But that wasn't releasing data on as yet to be issued opinions. So this is this breaks ground. Politically, I want to move to the polit- politics of this and give you my take and ha- actually I react to it. I, I think, first of all, that we're going to end up with a hodgepodge of laws where abortion will essentially be legal, probably in a little bit less than half the states. Illegal, essentially, in a little bit more than half the states. And it, it'll be essentially red states and blue states with some modifications. and uh, And I think we're where the uh, status of existing law uh, will matter most is a handful of kind of in-between states where it might be difficult to pass something new but it also might be difficult to repeal something you know where the status whatever the status quo is one more vote in arizona and we're uh, you know on the democratic side and we're basically you know we locked legislature as well and and there's a handful of states like that but Anybody with the price of a uh, plane ticket will be able to get an abortion, just not in the state where they live in necessarily. And that the other thing that I think will happen is that it's always the aggrieved party that's more politically active. The pro or the 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 pro life people have been more politically active on this issue for the last 50 years, I think because they're the aggrieved part. They're there's the party whose position was by and large not reflected in the law, and I think that flips overnight, that the most, the <clears throat> most aggrieved party will be the pro-choice side of this argument, and that uh, I would expect some increment in political activism from that side. Your take?
3: Um. I hope that you are correct. I think, you know, I thanked Kathy Herod to her face for giving us a winning election issue the other night. Right. Because I in all of the polling that Julie mentioned mm-hmm. earlier, if you break it down by political party, 95 percent of Democrats uh, agree with abortion rights. Fifty three percent of Republicans also believe in abortion rights. Depending
1: and, on how you word the right, question, Right. Government.
3: Depending on the wording. But 81% of independents agree with abortion rights. Who are the swing voters in Right, Arizona. they are the swing voters. And you will see Democrats and Republicans targeting, targeting independents in 2022, right? And so we know that they are on our side. All we have to do is make sure that we're connecting the dots for them when they get into the voting booth. Um, so... Bring it. We are, we're ready. We're ready to rally the troops. Um, we're ready to support folks like Julie Gunnigal. We're ready to support folks like Chris Mays, who's running for AG. We're ready to support a Democrat for governor. Um, we're going to do all that we can to make sure that we have backstops. But I think that Republicans fail to read the room every single time. Clearly, this is a mandate. Abortion rights are a mandate here. And they've just simply handed us over the election, and we'll take it.
1: Julie, it's been very close. Has this, has this issue escalated in terms of your own campaign?
4: Absolutely. My phone has been ringing off the hook with people who want to support, who want to get involved, and who've been saying that they didn't really see the difference potentially between people in the two parties before. And they see it now. There is so much energy behind this. And just being down at the Capitol a few days ago and seeing all of the young people, people who were not previously registered to vote, who are now willing to knock all of the doors and do everything possible to preserve reproductive rights in Arizona. I mean, I -hmm. I really can't overstate the enthusiasm now.
1: Well, I, I think, I mean, in part, I see this as for years, the Democrats have been saying you know, They're coming after. They're coming after these. And it was like after a while, you know, it's like yeah, yeah, yeah. You've been, you've been saying that for a lot of years. Well, it looks like it's about to happen.
3: We were right you all know? along. Yeah. Um, and I think that now we have an opportunity to hold Republicans in our legislature and in our higher elected offices accountable because now they have to look the constituents. Back in the eye and say, yeah, we criminalized abortion before they could hide behind Roe versus Wade and pass these laws that they knew weren't constitutional and weren't going to go anywhere and do that to drive their base. But now the onus is on them to justify what they've done to a 50 year old case, our legal precedent and Republicans get abortions too. Right. So I think that it's going to be really interesting to see how they're going to react, especially after the primaries. Right. Because I think that, you know, folks do the thing where they dance toward the right to get the base to come out and Mm -hmm. vote for them in the primary.
1: And it happens on the Democratic side. Right. Absolutely.
3: Uh, But we tend to seem to dance the other way. (laughs) But But I think it will be interesting to see how someone like Karen. Uh, Taylor Robson, who was just on your show, will make the case to independents and Republicans that support abortion rights that she is the right fit Mm -hmm. because she stands behind criminalization or criminalizing personal decisions that people make with themselves, their doctors, and not politicians.
1: And. That sounds like a very conservative position it does a, a, a traditional and, conservative well, here's you know. the
3: thing I keep throwing back at everybody. We've just spent three years with Republicans whining about having to wear masks and their body their choice and their freedoms and blah 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 blah. And so you know what? I agree. Right. (laughs) I agree in that case. My body, my choice. I should have the autonomy to make the decisions that I want about my body in consultation with medical professionals, not with the yahoos in the legislature.
1: (laughs) Julie,
4: how do you follow Chris Love? (laughs) (laughs) No, I think that's exactly right.
1: So where do we go from here? It, it it seems to me like we've had, you know, decades of litigation. It seems to me we're going to have litigation on steroids now.
3: Oh, yeah. Well, but we're going is... to have that checkerboard that you were talking mm-hmm. about of, yeah. you know, options with respect right. to where you can get an abortion and where you can't. And Arizona's really... Well-situated because we have Colorado that just codified abortion. Mm-hmm. We have um, California. California. We have New Mexico. We have Mexico, which just decriminalized abortion, mm-hmm. right? So we have options all around us, but that's not the case for every place. Mm-hmm. And so we're going to see not necessarily checkerboard, but wide swaths of our map that are blacked out simply because There will be no places for folks to go.
1: I wonder if there might not be in the hopper of legislation in some of the places that want to outlaw abortion to put in prohibitions. Well, it's in the, Mm -hmm. you know, the Mm -hmm. if you're aiding someone. Well, if you're helping somebody to get transportation out of state, is that that aiding? Mm -hmm. Is that aiding?
3: That's Mm -hmm. one of our trigger, our quote, unquote, not trigger bans is that, Mm -hmm. you know, it criminalizes people who assist. And Mm -hmm. so we're actually sitting down and contemplating what it is that we can and cannot do Mm -hmm. um, based on the world of possibilities that are still out there, even with the leak in this case. And if you
1: organized a a bus tour, you're we
3: might be legally responsible. Right. Yeah. We got to get Julie elected. That's Mm -hmm. what we need to do.
4: Well, thank you for that. And, you know, I'll also note that it's not just the laws that we have on the books. It's the potential for other laws, too. I mean, just two legislative sessions ago, we saw a representative introduce a law that created the death penalty for folks seeking an abortion.
3: Mm -hmm. And he's our favorite criminal justice reform legislator, too. That was the thing that that cracked
4: me up. So between that what our legislature could do coupled well, with what a the national ban— what the
1: legislature has been doing has been constrained by their perception of how far the supreme court would allow you to go without invalidating because most mostly it looked like you know we the attempt was to chip away at it but not to— you know, I'm sure that you, they, they this is their their pipe dream. Mm-hmm, that's really. how we ended yeah. up
3: with the 15-week ban this time around.
1: Julie, Gunnigal, your final thoughts on the subject.
4: Sure. It's now more important than ever that we have a county attorney who shares our values. And when 80% of Maricopa County residents don't believe our tax dollars should be spent in this way, I think it's important that our prosecutor's office reflect that. Arizona uh, people who have the potential to get pregnant need to know that they're not going to be put behind bars for their reproductive choices. And now we need to make sure that we have both a county prosecutor and a state AG who who agree and reflect those values. Chris,
3: what Julie said. And I need everyone to understand now that abortion is legal in all 50 states, including Arizona. The doors of Planned Parenthood are open to provide abortion as well as independent abortion providers. Come see us. And, you know, we will ride this storm together, but we're going to fight back.
1: Chris Love, Julie Gunigal. Um I, I want to thank you both for joining uh, the think tank. If you want to reach me, the website is Mike dot org. And that can be used as a vehicle for initiating email as well as social media. And we'll see you next week in the think tank.